0: Red salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Specific Characteristics of Our People's War by José María Sassón Introduction From the great treasury of Marxism-Leninism, we draw basic principles and historical lessons to shed light on the people's war that we are waging. But these are of general value. They are a general guide to our action. To rest content with them, without integrating them without concrete practice, is to turn them into lifeless dogma. To dispense with them is to engage in blind action, both dogmatism and empiricism are anthema to communists. as in all matters, we must integrate theory and practice in the conduct of people's war. The universal theory of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought must be applied to the concrete conditions of the Philippine Revolution. We adhere firmly to the great Lenin's teaching that the soul of Marxism is the concrete analysis of concrete conditions. Only by understanding the specific characteristics of our own people's war can we understand the laws that govern it, and thus can we adopt and implement the correct strategy and tactics for carrying it forward to victory. The basic principles and historical lessons already founded in the universal theory of the revolutionary proletariat have been paid for in blood by various peoples triumphant in their respective revolutions. But as far as carrying out and winning our own people's war is concerned, there is nothing more important than those principles and lessons that we learn on the basis of Philippine conditions and our own revolutionary experience. In this regard, we put the highest premium on those principles and lessons paid for in blood by our own people. Integrating Marxist-Leninist theory with Philippine practice is a two-way process we do not merely take advantage of the victories achieved abroad so that we may succeed in our own revolution, but we also hope to add our own victory to those of others and make some worthwhile contribution to the advancement of Marxism-Leninism and the world proletarian revolution so that in the end, mankind will be freed from the scourge of imperialism and enter the era of communism. At this stage of the Philippine Revolution, we wage a people's war, a revolutionary war, because it is the only method possible to end the armed oppression of the people by the reactionary state that is the instrument of the big comprador-landlord class. To gain a comprehensive understanding of the specific characteristics of our people's war, we must consider such specific conditions as that our people's war is in line with the national democratic revolution of a new type, that we need to wage a protracted war in the countryside that we are fighting in a mountainous archipelago, that the enemy is big and strong while we are still small and weak, that a fascist dictatorship has arisen amidst a political and economic crisis of the ruling system, that the country is dominated by one imperialist power, and thus there is a unified armed reaction, except in southwestern Mindanao, and that U.S. imperialism is on the decline in Asia and throughout the world, and world revolution is advancing amidst the general crisis of the world capitalist system, unprecedented since the end of World War II. In discussing the specific characteristics of our people's war, we are bound to point out certain advantages and disadvantages, or strengths and weaknesses. At the same time, we indicate immediately by what general process we can maximize our advantages and strengths and overcome the disadvantages and weaknesses. Chapter 1, National Democratic Revolution of a New Type Our country is semi-colonial and semi-feudal. It is under the indirect rule of U.S. imperialism whose most reliable agents and puppets are the big comprador landlords and big bureaucrats. The cities are ruled by the comprador big bourgeoisie and the countryside is ruled by the landlord class. The overwhelming majority of our 41 million people More than 90% of them are severely exploited and oppressed by the big compradors and big landlords who together with their closest and best paid political and technical subalterns compose a tiny minority that is no more than 2% of the population. The most oppressed and exploited are the toiling masses of workers and peasants. The urban petty bourgeoisie and the middle or national bourgeoisie also suffer from the semi-colonial and semi-feudal situation, with the former stratum suffering more than the latter. It is obvious why we interchangeably speak of people's war and revolutionary war. We are fighting for the revolutionary interests of the broad masses of the people. We are fighting specifically for their national democratic interests. Ours is a national democratic revolution aimed at completing our struggle for national independence and giving substance to the democratic aspirations of our people. We have no course but to fight for national emancipation and social liberation against U.S. imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism. In a sense, our National Democratic Revolution is a continuation of the Philippine Revolution that started in 1896. But this revolution has assumed new characteristics. It is of a new type it is no longer part of the old bourgeois capitalist revolution. It is part of the proletarian socialist revolution, which has emerged since the first global inter-imperialist war and the victory of the great socialist October revolution. Though we are still fighting for a national democratic revolution, this constitutes a preparation for carrying out a socialist revolution in our country. We are therefore engaged in a continuous Philippine revolution with two distinct stages the national democratic and socialist stages. In both stages, the class leadership is held by the proletariat, which is historically the most progressive as a political and economic factor, and which evokes the most advanced ideology. Through its vanguard detachment, the Communist Party of the Philippines, the proletariat sees to it that the national democratic revolution is carried out and completed, that the Socialist Revolution immediately ensues upon the victory of the National Democratic Revolution, and that for a whole historical epoch, socialism creates the foundation for communism. At the present stage of the Philippine Revolution, the party wields two weapons against the enemy. These are armed struggle and the National United Front. These are interrelated like the spear and the shield. One serves the other. The National Democratic Front ensures the widest possible popular support for armed struggle. It splits the enemy ranks and isolates the worst single enemy at a time. Armed struggle is specifically the weapon for carrying out the central task of the revolution, which is the destruction and overthrow of the enemy rule and the seizure of political power. To paraphrase Chairman Mao, without an army like the New People's Army, the people have nothing. To have a few seats in a reactionary parliament and to have no army in our country is to play a fool's game. Anytime the enemy chooses to change the rules of the game, say the constitution, he would be able to do so at the people's expense. Between armed struggle and parliamentary struggle, the former is principal and the latter is secondary. Every genuine revolutionary knows that the chief component of the reactionary state is the reactionary army. The Filipino people are helpless without their own army. They cannot take a single step towards smashing the entire military bureaucratic machine of the enemy without a people's army. In carrying out a people's war, the party builds the people's army as its main form of organization. It is not only an organization where the party membership is most concentrated. It is also an organization for uniting the proletarian revolutionaries and the peasant masses both within the army and in the localities. In this way, the basic alliance of the proletariat and the peasantry so necessary in a national united front takes the most effective, concrete form. The basic alliance of the proletariat and the peasantry is the foundation of the national united front. The stronger this alliance is in the course of people's war, the stronger is the desire of the urban petty bourgeoisie to join the national united front and take active part in revolutionary work. Likewise, the national bourgeoisie is encouraged to bring its support to such basic forces of the revolution as the proletariat, the peasantry, and the urban petty bourgeoisie. At this stage of the revolution, the leadership of the party and the proletariat is best proven by its ability to build a people's army and realize the basic alliance of the toiling masses. Chapter 2, Protracted War in the Countryside 85% of the national population is in the countryside. Of this rural population, the poor peasants together with the farm workers comprise about 75%, the middle peasants, about 15%, the rich peasants, about 5%. The landlords may be only 1 or 2%. About 3 or 4% is taken up by non-agricultural wage earners, artisans, small peddlers, merchants, students, teachers, and other professionals. There are drastic deviations from these percentages only in particular places where there are mines, logging, modern plantations, and some industries. Fishermen along the seacoast are mainly peasants. On the basis of these facts, the peasant population in the countryside have a special significance to us in waging people's war. The main social problem, the single problem affecting the greatest number of people, lies in the countryside. It is the land problem. Feudalism and semi-feudalism oppress and exploit the poor peasants, the farm workers, and the lower middle peasants. Without focusing attention on this problem and providing it with a solution, we cannot draw into the ranks of the revolution the most formidable force that can overwhelm the enemy. Agrarian revolution is the solution. The peasant masses are aroused and mobilized to overthrow landlord authority and carry out land reform step by step. Depending on the concrete circumstances, particularly the strength achieved by the revolutionary forces, rent reduction and elimination of usury or outright confiscation of landlord property may be affected. In frontier areas, the poor indigenous people and the poor settlers are to be assured of ownership of their fair-sized lands. The party maintains that the main content of the National Democratic Revolution is the satisfaction of the peasant cry for land. Only by carrying out agrarian revolution can the revolutionary leadership activate the peasant masses as the main force of the revolution and realize the basic alliance of the proletariat and the peasantry. From the ranks of the downtrodden peasantry can then be drawn the greatest number of armed contingents. As it now stands, the New People's Army is composed mainly of peasant recruits. The growth of our People's Army depends on the support of the peasant masses. In general terms, we state that the most reliable ally of the proletariat is the peasantry. In more specific terms, let us relate the revolutionary proletariat with the various strata of the peasantry. Our policy as proletarian revolutionaries is to rely mainly on the poor peasants together with the farm workers, win over the middle peasants, and neutralize the rich peasants. In the course of the National Democratic Revolution, we make it a point not to hurt unduly the interests of the rich peasants, even as we are alert to their reactionary tendencies. In opposing and overthrowing the landlords, we hold as chief targets landlords who have vast holdings who have acquired these by sheer grabbing, who hold political power, and who are despotic. We give special consideration, as the masses and circumstances may permit, to the enlightened gentry who endorse and follow our policies, and who support our revolutionary war. Our country is grossly underdeveloped due to imperialist domination, and retains a relatively wide countryside where feudalism and semi-feudalism reign. This backward countryside of our small country is not as large as that of China, but it is certainly large in comparison to our own cities. This is the basic setting for our people's war. The bulk of our national population is here. The weakest link of enemy rule lies in the countryside. The worst of oppression and exploitation is carried out among the peasant masses by the reactionaries. And yet the countryside is so vast That enemy armed forces cannot but be spread thinly or cannot but abandon vast areas when concentrated at certain points. The countryside is therefore the fertile ground for the emergence and growth of red political power, the people's army, organs of democratic political power, mass organizations, and the party. There can be no wider and better area for maneuver for our people's army and for our type of warfare. Our experience in more than five years shows that we have created a total of 20 guerrilla fronts in seven regions outside of Manila Rizal. These fronts continue to thrive in the countryside, even in the face of the unprecedentedly harsh fascist countermeasures. When the enemy advances in strong force against our small and weak forces, he is made to exhaust himself by punching the air and he merely allows his prey to hit weaker enemy units elsewhere or expand on new ground. The massive and prolonged enemy campaign of quote encirclement and suppression unquote has failed to destroy our small and weak forces in Cagayan Valley. In our country it is possible to wage a protracted people's war because we have a relatively wide backward countryside where the bulk of the population is. There are many parts which are relatively far from the enemy's center and main lines of communications and where the people live basically on their diversified agricultural produce. This situation is completely different from that obtaining in a capitalist country. In capitalist countries, a civil war is preceded by a long period of parliamentary struggle. To fight there a civil war without the disintegration of at least a great part of the standing army of the bourgeoisie, and without the proletariat ready for a general uprising capable of winning decisively, within a short period of time, is to court disaster for the revolutionary forces. The civil war is mainly conditioned by the fact that the majority of the people are in the cities and is initiated and decided in the major cities where the highly unified economy and the highly developed system of communications are centered. Nationwide victory or defeat in a civil war is faster settled in capitalist countries than in semi-colonial and semi-feudal countries. In the Philippines, it is as necessary as it is possible to wage a protracted people's war. It is only through a long period of time that we can develop our forces step by step by defeating the enemy forces piece by piece. We are in no position to put our small and weak forces into strategically decisive engagements with military superior enemy forces. In the first place, we have just started from scratch. Neither could we have postponed the start of our people's war. The more time we have for developing our armed strength from practically nothing, the better for us in the future. It is our firm policy to fight only those battles that we are capable of winning. Otherwise, we circle round in the face of an enemy force that we cannot defeat and look for the opportunity to strike at an enemy force that we can defeat. In carrying out a protracted people's war, we apply the strategic line of encircling the cities from the countryside. We steadfastly develop guerrilla bases and zones at various strategic points in the country. In a subsequent stage, these areas shall be linked by regular mobile forces, which shall be in a position to defend larger and more stable revolutionary bases in the countryside. From such stable revolutionary bases, we shall be able ultimately to seize the cities and advance to nationwide victory. While it is our principal task to wage a protracted war in the countryside, it is our secondary task to develop the revolutionary underground and the broad anti-imperialist and democratic mass movements in the cities. We should combine the revolutionary struggles in the cities and the countryside, in the towns and barrios in red areas, white areas, and pink areas. We should excel in combining legal, illegal, and semi-legal activities through a widespread and stable underground. A revolutionary underground developing beneath democratic and legal or semi-legal activities should promote the well-rounded growth of the revolutionary forces, serve to link otherwise isolated parts of the party and the people's army at every level, and prepare the ground for popular uprisings in the future and for the advance of the people's army. Chapter 3. Fighting in a Small Mountainous Archipelago The Philippines is a small mountainous archipelago. It is made up of some 7,100 islands and islets with a total land area of 299,404 square kilometers or 115,600 square miles. The 11 largest islands, which are tabulated below, compose 94% of the total land area and also contain 94% of the total population of the country. Every one of these and many other islands have a mountainous terrain with fertile soil. The importance of an island is not determined solely by its size. Population, forest area, and mountainous terrain are more important consideration for our people's war, especially at the initial stage. There are three outstanding characteristics of the Philippines in being an archipelago. First, our countryside is shredded into so many islands. Second, our two biggest islands, Luzon and Mindanao, are separated by such a clutter of islands at the Visayas. Third, our small country is separated by seas from other countries. From such characteristics arise problems that are very peculiar to our people's war. On the one hand, it is true that our countryside is wide in relation to the cities. On the other hand, it is also true that we have to fight within narrow fronts because the entire country is small and its countryside is shredded. The war between us and the enemy easily assumes the characteristics of being intensive, ruthless, and exceedingly fluid. While we have the widest possible space for the development of regular mobile forces in Luzon and Mindanao, these two islands are separated by hundreds of kilometers and by far smaller islands where the space immediately appears to be suitable only for guerrilla forces throughout the course of People's War. The optimum condition for the emergence of regular mobile forces in the major Visayan Islands will be provided by the prior development of regular mobile forces in Luzon and Mindanao. Waging a people's war in an archipelagic country like ours is definitely an exceedingly difficult and complex problem for us. At this stage, that we are still trying to develop guerrilla warfare on a nationwide scale, the central leadership has had to shift from one organizational arrangement to another so as to give ample attention to the regional party and army organizations. This is only one manifestation of the problem. Armed propaganda teams and initial guerrilla units scattered in far-flung areas are susceptible to being crushed by the enemy. This is another manifestation of the problem. There is no doubt that fighting in an archipelagic country like ours is initially a big disadvantage for us. Since the central leadership has to position itself in some remote area in Luzon, there is no alternative now, and even for a long time to come, but to adopt and carry out the policy of centralized leadership and decentralized operations. We must distribute and develop throughout the country cadres who are of sufficiently high quality to find their own bearing and maintain initiative not only within periods as short as one or two months, periods of regular reporting, but also within periods as long as two or more years in case the enemy chooses to concentrate on an island or a particular fighting front and blockade it. The development of the central revolutionary base somewhere in Luzon will decisively favor and be favored by the development of many smaller bases in Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. Thus, we have paid attention to the development of cadres for nationwide guerrilla warfare. In a small country like the Philippines, or more precisely in an island like Luzon, it would have been foolhardy for the central leadership to ensconce itself in one limited area, concentrate all the limited party personnel and all efforts there, and consequently invite the enemy to concentrate his own forces there. It would have been foolhardy to underestimate the enemy's ability to rapidly move and concentrate his forces in an island where communications are most developed. The central leadership started the armed struggle where it best could by linking with the Red Fighters in the 2nd District of Tarlac in early 1969. Soon, party cadres were dispatched to the mountainous and hilly areas of Isabella. Subsequently, what amounted to the main forces of the New People's Army vigorously grew here from early 1971 to the eve of the fascist martial rule. A few cadres trained here were dispatched for rural work in other regions. The first quarter storm of 1970 and the succeeding mass protest actions and mass organizing in Manila Rizal and other urban centers in the country yielded the greatest number of cadres for the national expansion of the party and the people's army in the rural areas. These cadres start raw but are enthusiastic, develop new party cadres from the ranks of the local mass activists and red fighters, and are tempered in the course of fierce revolutionary struggle. We have already created seven regional party and army organizations outside of Manila Rizal. After strengthening them, especially those of Northwest, Northeast, and Central Luzon, we can more confidently look forward to and take the step towards building the Central Revolutionary Base in a favorable terrain that is better populated and more extensive than the east of the Cagayan River. It should be in an area far more difficult for the enemy to blockade. Necessarily, the central leadership would be able to maintain more immediate relations with the regional party organizations in Luzon than with those in Visayas and Mindanao. The latter could still be administered through a special organ of the Central Committee. In the long run, The fact that our country is archipelagic will turn out to be a great advantage for us and a great disadvantage for the enemy. The enemy shall be forced to divide his attention and forces not only to the countryside but also to so many islands. Our great advantage will show when we shall have succeeded in developing guerrilla warfare on a nationwide scale and when at least we shall have been on the threshold of waging regular mobile warfare in Luzon or both in Luzon and Mindanao. We take the policy of, quote, a few major islands first, then the other islands later, unquote. This is now well understood in the Visayas. In every island or in the specific part of an island that we choose to concentrate on, we must develop self-reliance, maintain our guerrilla units within a radius that is limited at a given time to avoid dissipation of our efforts, but wide enough for maneuver, and advance wave upon wave, always expanding on the basis of consolidation. Our bitter experience has shown that overextending our guerrilla squads in the false hope of covering a wider area or attending to so many strategic points all at the same time result in shallow political work and are fatal for our squads. Among several guerrilla squads, it is necessary to have some center of gravity or rallying point either for temporary retreat or for a concentrated operation against the enemy. At the same time, we should never lose sight of the necessity of fluidity which often requires the shiftiness of such a center. Each regional party organization should see to it that at the present stage, it develops only one, two, or three armed fronts. The regional executive committee of the party should be based in the main front. More guerrilla bases and zones should arise only upon the consolidation of the few that could sufficiently be handled at one time. At present, it is not necessary to have an armed force in every province within a region. More often, it is advisable for us to locate our armed force at an interprovincial border area for maximum effect because in the first place, we do not have enough armed strength for every province. The principle of self-reliance needs to be emphasized among all revolutionary forces on a nationwide scale. This is because our small country is cut off by seas from neighboring countries, particularly those friendly to our revolutionary cause. The Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotian peoples are more fortunate than us in one sense because they share land borders with China, which serves as their powerful rear. Self-reliance can never be overemphasized among us. The basic need of our people's war have to be provided for by the people's army and the broad masses of the people themselves. Our basic source of armaments is the battlefield. Our level of military technique and our ability in tactics and strategy will have to rise by adhering strictly to the Marxist principle of advancing in stages and doing well at one stage to prepare for the next stage. The protractedness of our people's war is underscored by the archipelagic character of this country. The mountainous character of the country countervails its archipelagic character from the very start. A mountainous terrain with some population and with thick vegetation is an excellent condition for our people's war. If on one hand, the archipelagic character of the country has a narrowing effect on our fighting fronts, its mountainous character has both a broadening and deepening effect. Mountains are usually the natural boundaries of provinces, thus we can maintain influence on several provinces even if we were to operate only from one mountainous border. Also, the enemy cannot easily approach us because of the rough terrain and we have more opportunity than anywhere else to conduct political work among the people. Before he starts to climb a hill, we can receive the relayed reports from the masses in the towns and in the barrios. We can actually see his coming from vantage points, and we can size up his operation and its possible time span by the sight of his troops, trucks, and planes. We can therefore prepare for his coming. The Sierra Madre sews up almost the entire length of Luzon on the eastern side of the Cagayan Valley, to the Bacol region through central Luzon. It links as many as nine provinces. At certain points, it links two or three provinces at the same time. The Cordillera and Ilocos Mountains cover the middle and western parts of northern Luzon. These link as many as 11 provinces. At certain points, they link as many as four provinces at the same time. The mountain provinces and their fringes have the distinction of being the area where the heaviest concentration of Japanese troops in the Philippines in World War II, reaching up to 150,000, was wiped out by guerrilla forces. The Tarlac Zambalas Mountains link up five provinces. The armed struggle there has to be well-coordinated with the armed struggle in the wide plains below, with special attention given to the fact that U.S. military bases and major AFP military camps are in the vicinity. There are many other smaller mountains in Luzon. They can also provide a favorable terrain for guerrilla forces. Mindanao is an even more mountainous and more forested island than Luzon. At the center of Mindanao are the mountainous provinces of Bukidnon and Cotabato. These are well populated as the mountain provinces of northern Luzon. These are linked up with almost all the Mindanao provinces. Outside of Luzon and Mindanao, The mountains of Panay link four provinces and those of Samar, Leyte, and Mindoro link two provinces at the same time. A mountainous terrain where more people inhabit the foothills, clearings, plateaus, and riversides or creeksides is more favorable for the people's army. The usual inhabitants of the mountainous areas are national minorities and poor settlers. These are very receptive to revolutionary propaganda. Their common enemy is the reactionary government, which treats their lands as, quote, public lands, unquote, and either directly grabs these from them or allows big landlords, big bureaucrats, or big capitalists to grab these from them. At the very outset, we should energetically arouse and mobilize them to defend their lands and meager possessions against the land grabbers and the enemy forces. In launching military operations against us, the enemy always resorts to forced evacuation of these mountain inhabitants and so as to prepare the way for taking away their lands. We must thoroughly oppose every forced evacuation. The fact that we have given the highest priority to creating guerrilla bases and zones and mountainous areas has helped us in a big way to preserve our guerrilla forces in the face of so many small and big campaigns of quote encirclement and suppression unquote, launched against us. Without the use of the Sierra Madre, our small forces in Cagayan Valley with only three companies as main force could not have preserved themselves against 7,000 enemy troops. Without the use of the mountainous areas of Sorsogon, our small initial forces there could not have expanded to their peak of one platoon-sized main force and eight squads and could have been more easily reduced upon the coming of 1,000 enemy troops. However it must also be pointed out that it is erroneous to rely exclusively on mountainous terrain. Our point is to use the combination of the less populated mountainous terrain and better populated plains, relying mainly on the former for military purposes at this very early stage of our people's war. From the mountainous and hilly areas, we can expand toward the more populated plains. Even when we shall have gone far in building bases on the plains, our mountainous and hilly bases will retain their strategic importance as guarantors of the victorious advance of the People's War. The Central Revolutionary Base can best stand on the well-inhabited mountainous terrain that is of the greatest breadth in Luzon. Everywhere, bases on the plains, sea coasts, lakes, and rivers will find the indispensable support of bases in the mountainous and hilly areas. Amidst the 20 guerrilla bases and zones already in existence, and on the basis of the experience gained in creating them, the central leadership can proceed to establish the central revolutionary base somewhere in the well-inhabited mountainous area of northern Luzon. The guerrilla bases and zones of northeast Luzon, northwest Luzon, and central Luzon can stand as the future terminals of regular mobile forces that are to arise at the central revolutionary base. After doing well in building two or three guerrilla bases in every region outside of Manila Rizal, We can go on to create more guerrilla bases and zones of every type. Every regional organization of the party and the People's Army is to establish its own central base and raise in the long run regional mobile forces. On the eve of the nationwide seizure of power, Manila Rizal shall be caught in a pincer between regular mobile forces from the north and from the two regions of southern Luzon. Mindanao is subdivisable into three or four regions and a central revolutionary base can also be set up to coordinate these regions. The long-term task of our Mindanao forces is to draw enemy forces from Luzon and destroy them. We can cooperate very well with Moro National Liberation Front and the Bangsa Moro Army in this regard. Our forces in the Visayas can take advantage of our gains in Luzon and Mindanao and contribute their own share in the task of forcing the enemy to split his forces and of destroying them. Because our country is archipelagic, it is a matter of necessity for us to develop guerrilla bases and zones along the seacoast. Communications is one clear immediate reason. We should be able to develop as many routes as possible between Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao by conducting political work among the fishermen and seamen. Within the Visayas, boating is as common as trucking in the Luzon or Mindanao mainlands. If we take lessons from southwestern Mindanao, Especially from Sulu archipelago, we can further develop sea warfare, a form of guerrilla warfare making use of small bancas, boats, and big as well as small islands. This would constitute a good support for a guerrilla warfare on land.